We will begin with the reading of 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 first. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Please turn also to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The text for this morning is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This also is God's holy word. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. 
Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for your guidance in our lives. And Father, we thank you for your provision, for indeed, you are the center of all things. And Father, we pray that we might live our lives uh, not seeking the wanton pleasures and seeking fulfillment in them, for there is none to be had. Help us to see, Father, that you indeed are our true treasure and our true joy and our true comfort. And may we find our joy in you. And Father, we pray that if any are here listening who do not know Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that Jesus would be high and lifted up, that we would find in him our only hope for the forgiveness of sins. And may Christ be exalted and that your servant will be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. When you think about pleasure, perhaps you're asking the question, well, how are we to view pleasure? How how does the author of Ecclesiastes view pleasure? Anytime we enjoy something, are we supposed to walk away with some sense of guilt that these things are inherently evil? Is there something inherently evil about pleasure? And perhaps in this book of Ecclesiastes, the question is, is getting answered. And I want you to understand that pleasure itself is not inherently evil. That all kinds of philosophies in the past have addressed these. So you have the groups called the Stoics who, who saw pleasure as evil. And, and other, other groups who see pleasure as evil. But God has given us pleasure. He's given us pleasure, things to enjoy. But the question is, are those things obscuring your sight of God and your enjoyment of Him? Are they in some way a substitute for the enjoyment of God? So here we have in the text, starting from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, it's as if the author... In the last verse of chapter 1, verse 18, when he says that wisdom and knowledge brings about uh, vexation and pain. And he's ending with that thought, well, pain. Well, let's talk about the opposite of pain, pleasure. And this is where Ecclesiastes chapter 2 comes in. Oh, so you don't like pain. Okay, well, let's talk about pleasure. So this is how we get to this topic in the beginning of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're talking about pleasure. So the truth that we see in this passage is God provided creation for man's enjoyment. But your soul's true satisfaction is only in Christ, not in finite objects and beings. God provided creation for man's enjoyment, but your soul's true satisfaction is only in Christ, not in finite objects and beings. We'll look at this truth in three points. The first is the hedonistic pursuit, simplified and summarized in verses 1 and 2. Second point, the hedonistic pursuit attempted and identified in verses 3 through 8. And third, the hedonistic pursuit experienced and found wanting in verses 9 through 11. So the first point, the hedonistic pursuit, simplified and summarized in verses 1 and 2. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Here he addresses that topic about pain at the end of 
Ecclesiastes chapter 1 in verse 18, if wisdom is vexing and increasing knowledge only increases pain, then the author is saying, well, let's seek pleasure then. In fact, let's address that topic. And in verses 1 through 11, is as if he is uh, slowly opening the door. In verses 1 and 2, he's, he's going to give you the executive summary. In verses 3 through 8, he, he gives you the, uh, basically the procedure of his experiment. So let, let, me, let me give you all the details. And then verses 9 through 11, he gives you the conclusion. So this uh, verses 1 and 2, that's like the executive summary or the abstract. So he's sparing you all the gory details. He's cutting to the chase. And his conclusion is that with pleasure, it's all but vanity. So he covers these two subheadings. He mentions laughter or mirth for a moment in verse 2. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? And perhaps some of you are wondering, what's wrong with laughter? What's wrong with mirth? Is, is laughter inherently wrong? Well, the answer is no. God has given us laughter. Think about Proverbs 31, about this virtuous woman, how she laughs or she smiles at the days ahead. Look also at why or over what we laugh. What is the object of your laughter? It must not be at the downfall of others. Proverbs 24:17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. So that we should never be laughing or rejoicing at the suffering or the downfall of others. Also, we should not be laughing at God or mocking God, that a man will reap what he sows, that he who mocks God will be judged. There's also the matter of laughter. Regarding, think about comedians. Perhaps the most famous one is that of Robin Williams. He was an entertainer, a comedian, an actor uh, for many decades. And years ago, think about his life, that he could make all kinds of people laugh. That he could walk into a room, the room would light up, people would laugh about just about everything that he said. And yet, a very sad story that he suffered from depression, that though he was able to make other people laugh, and though it seemed like he was laughing, that inside he was quite sad. Uh, not making light of his death or his life, but he ended up committing suicide. And so here, laughter, uh, is it a substitute for, uh, does it cover up the pain that we have in this life? The answer is no. Anyone can understand that with laughter, uh, if you're in a social situation where you're with people and there's some kind of an awkward silence or some strange thing happens and someone makes a joke, cracks a one-liner, and enlightens the mood. And those things are helpful. Here, the immediate conclusion that the author draws about this pleasure. He spares us all the gory details. He cuts to the chase. And he says, but behold, this also was vanity. Meaning that it was but a breath. It was but a vapor or smoke. It's meaningless. It's worthless. If you pursue pleasure, it's not as if pleasure 
satisfies for long. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 8, he addresses this very matter. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So he's saying, well, your eye sees all kinds of things, but then even though it's seen something, it's not enough. So if you enjoy art and you go to museums, that uh, art, you keep on seeing it, but you still want to see more of it and more of it and more of it. And same with the ear. You hear good music and it's not filled. It's not satisfied. It's not satiated. And you have to hear more and more. This is the issue with pleasure. That with food or drink, with wealth, with material goods, with sex, does it ever satisfy in such a way that one says, I need no more of it? Think also here about some differences between uh, the wisdom of Proverbs and the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. In Proverbs, the wise man learns from the divine wisdom of God. So there's instructions, there's rules given, <clears throat> there's guidance, there's principles shared, and that we ought to receive those from God and heed them, that we ought to believe them, that we ought to obey them. And Ecclesiastes kind of approaches it slightly differently. Ecclesiastes presents wisdom of experience, of experience of failure, experience of error, and that we ought to learn from that. This is the wise man learning from the mistakes of others. Uh, the fool is one who doesn't learn from the word of God. <clears throat> he rejects God's wisdom, God's truth, as falsehood and error. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> the, the fool also does not accept the wisdom of others. That <clears throat> the worst of all fools is that those who make the same mistakes and repeat them, but the wise person is the one who learns from the mistakes of others. <clears throat> and what shall you and I be? Are we <clears throat> going to be wise in such a way that we can learn from the word of God, that we can learn from the instruction of others? So this is the hedonistic pursuit simplified and summarized, that pursuing pleasure is vanity. It's worthless. It doesn't satisfy. <clears throat> we have the second point, the hedonistic pursuit attempted and identified in verses 3 through 8. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Here, this 
author, Kohelet, uh, the convener or the gatherer, that he begins in verse 3 with wine. He addresses the matter of wine. I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. That he's claiming here that uh, his heart was still guiding him with wisdom. So perhaps he's saying that he enjoyed wine in such a way that he didn't fall into debauchery. And on one hand, we can, we can accept what he's saying, that it is possible to enjoy wine that God has given and not fall into drunkenness and debauchery. We ought to understand that God has given wine for man to enjoy. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So here, uh, the scriptures tell us that God has given wine to man to gladden his heart. But men use wine instead to deaden their senses, to numb themselves to pain. Why is it that people... desire to drink wine to an excess? Is it because they're trying to deaden some pain or some guilt? That people who who have painful experiences of the past often use alcohol or drugs to try to escape it. But God has given us hope in the gospel that Jesus Christ is the answer to that guilt, that he is the one who graciously receives sinners and forgives us of our sin that alcohol and drugs are really no escape from those things. They're no escape to the guilt. They're no escape from the pain that we once suffered, that we have true meaning and true answers and satisfaction in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's the one who is in control of all things. Oftentimes, the Christian church passes off any drinking, any drinking of alcohol as sin, But the scriptures don't tell us that. Rather, the scriptures address the matter of the abuses of alcohol, specifically drunkenness, for it leads to unrestrained passions. But alcohol itself is not, by definition, sin. The abuse of alcohol is sin. Continuing there, besides alcohol, the author addresses the matter in verses 4 through 6. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So here, Solomon, or the author, is describing his work. That he set about his work. He built houses. And perhaps here we can think of the house of the forest of Lebanon in 1 Kings 10, 18. That uh, King Solomon, uh, there in his house, or his palace, that there he had an ivory throne overlaid with the finest of gold. The vineyards referred to here, of course, supplies him with the grapes to make his fine wine. And the gardens and the parks mentioned... There in verse 5, I made myself gardens and parks. Very interesting that the word there for parks is actually 
uh, well, it's literally paradise. So the Hebrew word there sounds just like our word paradise. So it's as if Solomon was attempting to reproduce the Garden of Eden before the fall. So as if he's saying, hey, he's attempting to make the Garden of Eden right here on earth. And regarding his work there in verse 4, I made great works. It's as if he's saying, I'm going to go back to Adam before the fall, his job of tending the garden, and I'm going to attempt to do that. I'm going to attempt to make heaven here on earth. And with anything, if we attempt to make heaven here on earth, thinking that we can create a paradise and put all our hope and our trust in those things uh, of establishing our own paradise, the, the answer will always be a failure. God is the one who provides us heaven. And any other place, any, any man-made claim of this is heaven will fail. It won't satisfy. He continues in verse 7, speaking about the matter of slaves. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. So Solomon, of course, did not do all the work himself. He needed an entire retinue of staff. And perhaps I should make a brief point here. Uh, there is, in our culture now, this cancel culture. We think about historic people. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, George Washington, and some of these people in the past, and how suddenly they're now canceled. They're, uh, they're now despised because we're told that they were slave owners. Well, when we read these scriptures, whether or not this was talking about Solomon, who had male and female slaves, is immaterial. Whether or not it's Solomon or whoever this unnamed author is of Ecclesiastes, uh, we have a clash, potentially, of two worldviews. That the scriptures are true. They're authored by the Holy Spirit. But if we come at, come at it with the cancel culture and say, and say, hey, whoever wrote this must be canceled, then we've eliminated the scriptures. We have a clash of worldviews. That ultimately we have to say this, the word of God is true. And we must be honoring it and submitting to it and believing it because this is God's word. When we think about this staff of his, we have some idea of the size of his staff. When we look at Solomon's daily allotment of food, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 22 to 23, Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. Just to give you an idea, a cow, a full-grown cow, weighs 1,000 pounds. And uh, that's 1,000 pounds of, of it living. But if you slaughter the cow and you process it, meaning you take all the guts out and take all the skin off, that a hanging weight, so hanging on a hook, it should weigh, a thousand pound cow should weigh about 600 pounds. And you think about how many people that can feed, if it's about a pound per person for a whole day, that's about 600 people. And then you have not 
one, but ten of those fattened oxen and also twenty of those pasture-fed cattle. That's, that's a whole lot of people. It's a sizable staff that Solomon has. We're told regarding his staff in First Kings chapter 10 that the queen of Sheba came. And she was impressed by his house, by his wisdom, by his servants, the order and all, all that he had. Meaning that Solomon, in his wisdom, set the kingdom in order. Regarding the enjoyment of herds and flocks, we can understand that Solomon, with the wisdom that God had given him, would have applied it to breeding. So... When we think in our society now, in the modern day, when you think about Wagyu beef or Kobe beef, well, wouldn't we think that somehow Solomon would have understood how to raise the best and tastiest cattle? That uh, this would have been found at his table. Then we have the enjoyment of silver and gold. Silver and gold, I gathered for myself, silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. So you think about how Solomon acquired silver and gold. Some of it came by taxation, taxing the people of Israel. But it seems like a lot of his silver and gold uh, came from people who brought him tribute and gave him gifts. That uh, even the Queen of Sheba, when she came and she listened to his wisdom, is as if she's saying, hey... Uh, I've benefited so greatly from what you've shared that you helped me solve some of the common problems in my society and in how I set up my house and all, and all the things that are, are gone wrong and where I come from. So they were saying, we'll give you this gold. That Queen of Sheba, when she visited, gave him 120 talents of gold. And one talent is about 75 pounds or for those of you who use the metric system, it's 34 kilograms. Told that in one year, Solomon received 666 talents of gold. And that silver, which was the common form of currency, was so commonplace in Israel during the time of Solomon that it was like stone. But we also have a warning in the scriptures. Later in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Here's the warning. If you love money, you'll never be satisfied with it, and that you'll never have enough of it. So the warning then is don't love money. Don't serve money. Serve the Lord. He is the one who satisfies we have also in verse 8 the mention of music and singers. I got singers, both men and women. You can understand that people who enjoy the finer things in life, wine, uh, the best food, that they would also enjoy music. Music to listen to while they drink their wine and eat their food. And for Solomon, he would have had people, servants, who were trained in singing. And, and he would have many singers, choirs together, <clears throat> working together, other musicians. Perhaps we can understand some of that 
in our modern day, when you have, uh, well, many years ago, it would have been an MP3 player, or before that, it would have been a record or CD collection, but now you can have all that uh, stored on your memory of your phone. And do we not have things uh, even more satisfying in music than Solomon? We don't have to have our own choir of men and women. We can just download the best music. Uh, here, we can say that we have it better in that regard than Solomon does. We can listen to all the choirs. We can listen to all the orchestras and, uh, and best singers. And no mention of Solomon's pleasure would be complete without the mention of his wives and his concubines. So there he mentions in the end of verse 8, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. That Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That Solomon, sadly, he disobeyed God's warning to the Israelite kings not to take to themselves many wives. Perhaps the broader topic should be addressed. That sex was not man's idea. It was actually God's idea that he gave it to man there in the garden. It was to be enjoyed, but only within the confines of a marriage covenant. That you think about what God did. He said that this gift of sex was supposed to happen within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And that was the only way that it was to be enjoyed. So perhaps you're asking the question. You look at all the things that, that Solomon said he did. His great works, his houses, his vineyards, his gardens and parks, his fruit trees, pools to, to irrigate uh, his growing garden. And you ask the question perhaps, so what are we to think about pleasure? Is there something inherently wrong about pleasure? Should we feel guilty when we enjoy the things of life? The answer is no. God has generously given the material blessings for you to enjoy. Just don't forget that he himself is that blessing. The focus should not be on the gifts, but on the gift giver. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God has given us these things and we ought to enjoy them. There's nothing wrong with enjoying those things. But perhaps there has to be the question of why. Are we forgetting God in our enjoyment of his gifts? As you look through verses 3 through 8, perhaps you notice the repetition of the phrase, for myself, or just myself. Notice there, that oftentimes it's mentioned, I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks, and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools. So at least eight times, this phrase, for myself, is mentioned in verses 3 through 8. So the question that you have to ask yourself is, is the pursuit of pleasure and wealth all for you and about you? That Colossians 3 verse 17, 
we have, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That God needs to be the focus. That in our leisure and enjoyment, you and I, we ought not to forget the Lord. That oftentimes, for man, pleasure and wealth becomes the focus. That it becomes our purpose. It becomes our burning desire. That we work hard during the week so that we can get to the weekend to play hard and enjoy our pleasures. That we allow our pursuit of pleasure to define us. And we take identity in the things that we pursue. But when you think about all of these terms, identity, definition, focus, purpose, uh, burning desire, these all describe that which you worship, that we love and we fear, that we enjoy, that this ought to be our description of God, that God is the one who defines us. He is the one in, which, in whom we have our true identity. Our identity is in Christ. That he should be our focus, our purpose, and our burning desire. That the enjoyment of these things must be in the context of enjoying God. That when we see the things that he's given us, the wealth, the pleasure, that we ought to say we praise the Lord for these things. We ought not to forget that it is God who gave it. And it is our enjoyment of him. Think for that for a moment about the example of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. That Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he seeks out Daniel, uh, and he asks him about this dream. And Daniel tells him, <clears throat> if only this dream were about your enemy or your adversaries, but it's actually about you. And what Daniel tells him is, <clears throat> You're going to be humbled. Uh, you're going to eat the dew and the grass. And you're going to be humbled until you acknowledge that all these things are from God. And then you will return back to ruling as king. Daniel 4 verse 30. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So Daniel, uh, sorry, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He looks out, standing on top of his, his, his city, and he sees all these things, and he's marveling, and he's saying, all these things are about me and bring me glory. And no sooner did this happen did God humble him. And after he was humbled, in Daniel 4, 36-37, at, at the time, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So here, it was King Nebuchadnezzar who learned that it wasn't all about him, that he was brought to humility by the Almighty God. And perhaps this is what you and I need all the time, is that God bring us to humility, that we would understand that he has given us pleasure for us to enjoy, but that 
in our enjoyment of it, we ought never to forget him. So that's the second point, the hedonistic pursuit attempted and identified. We have in the third point, the hedonistic pursuit experienced and found wanting, in verses 9 through 11. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Here, the author is describing that he became great. He surpassed all who came before him in Jerusalem. And yet he says, also my wisdom remained with me. And for Solomon, this was not quite true. Though he might claim it, it's not true because the scriptures record that later on in life, Solomon departed from following the Lord. He was led astray by these foreign, unbelieving wives. In 1 Kings 11.4, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Solomon's wisdom began departing when he disobeyed God and married all of these unbelieving women. The departure of his heart from God was already in the making, and it merely took some time to manifest it. Perhaps you can say that during his life, after he married all these women, before his later years, when he started uh, making uh, temples and monuments for these foreign gods, that his heart was already starting to be led astray, that he was going through the motions, <clears throat> the formalities. And perhaps this is where you and I ought to be asking ourselves, is that where you and I are? Are we caught in those formalities? Are we holding to these rigid rules out of some sense of loyalty, but not having our heart in them? The departure from God is never all of a sudden. It's often the result of a series of bad decisions and a departure slowly of transferring our loves from him to someone or something else. Here also, the author gives this rule. There in verse 10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. This also is of concern, that pleasures ought to be enjoyed, but this idea of keeping back nothing that our eyes see, this is a very, in general, very bad principle. There must always be restraint to our passions and our pleasures, that you must be ready to tell yourself no. You must be ready to hear the answer no from God and from men. That if you're ever enraged because someone tells you no, you have your answer about where your heart is. We must at any time be ready to tell ourselves no to some of the pleasures in life. And that when others tell us no, that we ought to be willing to receive it. The author comes to the conclusion 
verse 11, he gives somewhat of an excuse, somewhat of a justification. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. I'm sorry. Uh, it was from verse 10. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. So he's justifying, I'm enjoying it because I earned it, because I worked for it, and I got it. And on one hand, it's, it's good to understand the principle of working and earning, and this idea of uh, we, we should not be enjoying uh, what we take from other people unjustly, that that would be bad, but we ought to work for things, and we can enjoy the fruits of our labor. But at the end of the day, the pleasures the Lord gives us, these are gifts. It's by His grace that uh, we, we cannot say that we deserve these things, that we deserve to be, have a comfortable and a pleasurable life. Because if that's the case, then where does suffering come in? That especially in the New Testament, you see so much uh, described by Jesus himself about suffering for his people, persecution for his people, taking up the cross daily and following him. The pleasure is good, yes, but there must also be a willingness to suffer on behalf of the Lord Jesus. He concludes that all of this was vanity and a striving after wind, that there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he, he began by talking about uh, pleasure. It was all vanity in verse 1. He tells you the experiment he carried out, the things that he pursued, uh, the great works, the gardens, the parks, the houses, the vineyards, uh, the forests, all these things. And then here he concludes by saying that it was vanity and striving after wind. None of this satisfied. Perhaps you're asking at this point, what truly satisfies? In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Ultimately, our true satisfaction is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. The attempt to obtain infinite satisfaction from finite people and finite objects that that is a fool's errand. Think for a moment about Psalm 16 and the verses of that psalm. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That if there's anything good we have in this life, it is the Lord Jesus. It is God himself. Psalm 16:5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. That God is the chosen portion. If there's the last thing that we give up, it would be him. That we're willing to part, we're willing to sacrifice anything that there is that we have. Because the bottom line is all the material things, none of it can we take with us. All of those things will be left behind. The gold, the silver, the bonds, whatever it is, they're going to be left behind when we die. No one takes it with them. Psalm 16, 11. You make me know, you make me, 
You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The only way we can have eternal satisfaction to the fullest is we find our true pleasure and satisfaction in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our very hope. In him we have eternal life. In him we have the forgiveness of sins. That the guilt in which the wine we're trying to eliminate and numb the pain, that God is the one who removes that guilt and shame from us as far as the east is from the west. That if there's any pleasure in this life, all of them will pale in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Are you one who is trusting in Jesus? You must embrace him for eternal life. You must believe upon his promises that he freely offers you the forgiveness of sins. Where else can you get this? You can get it nowhere but in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That God freely offered up his son when he died on the cross and he calls sinners to himself saying, believe upon my promise. Embrace the gospel by faith. Cling to Jesus Christ. Believe that his death is sufficient to cover for your sins. And it is. And that we ought to live for his glory. That as you enjoy the finer things in life, that we ought to remember, God, you have given these things to me. And that ultimately, we're not reminded that we love the gifts. But ultimately, we're reminded we love the one who gave those gifts. Because God, you yourself are our satisfaction and our joy. May we go to our God together in prayer.